Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 35. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Occasionally, we like to nurture the seeds to a good potential Drabblecast story by shedding a little sunlight on something happening in the real world that is, well, way weirder than anything most fiction writers can conjure up. We call this Drabble News. St. Paul, Minnesota. A man was in custody Sunday after police said he ripped the head off a tame duck that lived in a hotel lobby's ornamental pond. Scott D. Clark, a guest at the Embassy Suites Hotel in St. Paul, cornered the duck early Saturday morning, grabbed the bird, and ripped its head from its body while a hotel security guard and others watched. Clark then turned to onlookers and said, What? I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it, St. Paul Police Sergeant John Wernan said. He was allegedly drunk. He remained jailed Sunday on suspicion of felony animal cruelty and was scheduled to appear in court Monday to be charged. If convicted, he could face up to two years in prison and a $5,000 fine, said Tim Shields, general counsel with the Minnesota Federated Humane Society. Shields said the incident was unconscionable and that having live ducks in a hotel lobby puts them at risk of being stepped on or run over by suitcases. I think Embassy Suites needs to take another look at this and review how they keep ducks safe, Shields said. That's actually my favorite line of this story. Take another look at this and review how they keep ducks safe. As if they have some sort of duck safety manual and the situation has gotten out of hand for the last time, they need to make amends to their articles on waterfowl cohabitational well-being. This is how I picture Embassy's weekly board of directors meeting this week. Yes, well, I know we've all had a long day, so I'd just like to adjourn this meeting by saying... Um, sir, if I may... What is it, Anderson? We've already covered a lot today. It's... Well, it's the ducks, sir. I really... No, no, I I know. I know this isn't something you all want to hear. I just... We need to... If I can just have a minute of your time, everyone, we, we need to re-examine our duck safety policy again. It, it, it keeps getting bumped off the agenda, and... It keeps getting bumped off the agenda because we've covered this so many times, Anderson. Every week with you, it's always, we need to take another look at our policies on duck security. Well, sir, maybe if we took action and actually did something to affect change, rather than just always reviewing our policy, then... Policy is policy. See, Anderson, it's not that easy. When was the last time you even looked at our modus operandi on duck and goose security? Do you realize what it would take to revise procedures that detailed and comprehensive? How many ducks have to get stepped on or run over by suitcases, sir? How many? Tell me that. You're out of line, Anderson. Well, you're unconscionable. <sighs> That's a great word you don't hear too often. Unconscionable not guided or controlled by conscience. Let's all make an effort to use that word this week, at least once. Wow, that's actually a really great segue into this week's story. I actually pulled it off this week. You'll understand in a bit. Just wait. Our story this week is called The Guilt Trader by Mike Hood. Mike is a former newspaper and television journalist who lives in Texas with four dogs, a cat, two squirrels, and a very tolerant woman. His work has appeared in magazines and newspapers around the country. 
You can find more of Mike's stories on his blog, writingoffthewall.blogspot.com. That'll be on the website. So without further ado, The Guilt Trader by Mike Hood. Brian Flugler was depressed. His head rested on the soft pillow the porter had given him. His eyes searched the monotonous Kansas landscape as it rolled by the window. He sighed. Eddie and Patient Spaulding finished their iced teas in the club car and began their search for the compartment to which they were assigned. Patience carried a large Prada handbag and Eddie gingerly toted a muslin sack the size of a bowling ball bag. No longer able to stand the numbness of Kansas, Brian dug a Sudoku puzzle book out of his knapsack and tried to fill his head with numbers. It was useless. The only number that kept coming up was one. One out of 137. One, the number of patients he had killed. One equaled Carrie Ann Spinoza, the hot air balloon pilot who had come to him for help for her disorder, for her chaos. As Carrie Ann's pale, dewdrop face began to float behind Brian's closed eyes, he was jolted out of his reverie by the sound of the compartment door banging open. I think this is it, Eddie, said the stunning woman in the doorway. She was tall, five foot ten inches at least, with Slavic cheekbones, piercing blue eyes, and she was rounded with child. Brian sat up a little straighter. Uh, if you're looking for 5B, then this is it, he said with a smile. Patience swung her laser blue eyes around until they landed on Brian's face. Oh, thank you, she said, momentarily startled. Come on, Patience, go have a seat. I need to get out of the aisle. There are people trying to get by. To Brian, the voice had a slight Asian accent. Chinese, perhaps. No, more Vietnamese or Cambodian. Patience moved to a seat opposite Brian and stowed her bag in the overhead bin. Eddie entered, all three feet, four inches of him. He was dressed in a charcoal gray suit, light blue shirt, and a crimson tie. Hi, he said, turning towards Brian. I guess we'll be traveling together for a while. I'm Ed, and this is my wife Patience. Patience smiled again, and Brian introduced himself to his traveling companions. Eddie placed the sack he was carrying under the seat and sat, legs dangling. Sweetie, Eddie told Patience, you need to get some rest. Why don't you lay back and try to sleep? Brian offered Patience his pillow. She accepted, and when he leaned over to hand it to her, his nostrils filled with the odor of roadkill. The smell, it seemed, was coming from the sack at Eddie's feet. The rocking of the train soon lulled Patience into a deep sleep, and when Brian noticed her unconscious state, he moved over opposite Eddie and asked, So, Eddie, what's in the bag? It has a rather unpleasant odor. <laughs> Eddie, who'd been writing in a small notebook, looked up at the sound of Brian's voice. He quickly glanced at his wife to make sure she was asleep before answering. Well, Brian, there's a dead monkey in the sack. A dead spider monkey named Victor. This bit of news startled Brian. 
Jesus, Eddie, what the hell are you doing carrying around a dead spider monkey? <laughs> yeah, I know. It can't be avoided, though. I doused it in cologne before we left, but that hasn't seemed to work. Patience and I are taking Victor to California to be buried at Primate Paradise in Reseda. We promised her mother we'd do it. Victor was her companion. She wants him to be interred in the same place as Bobo, that movie monkey. Her mom is nuts, <laughs> but what are you going to do? How did the monkey die? Was it old age? No, I killed it, said Eddie. That little bastard wouldn't stop screwing with my ears. It was driving me crazy. He'd stick those little spidery fingers deep in my ears and wiggle them. I warned him several times, but he wouldn't listen. So when Patience and her mom went to the grocery store one day, I broke the monkey's neck. I guess it's the least I can do to see that he gets a nice send-off. What about you, Brian? What's your story? Eddie's confession made Brian uneasy. He couldn't imagine how anyone could be so blasé about admitting he killed a pet monkey. But being a therapist, he knew people dealt with their actions in many different ways. Brian decided to try to deal with his by telling Eddie his story. I killed someone also, although neck-breaking was not the mode of dispatch. You see, Eddie, I'm a psychotherapist, and I gave a patient of mine some bad advice. And then she ended up skydiving off a hot air balloon without a parachute. Whoa, suicide. Bama, you didn't advise her to jump, did you? No, I didn't. I can't tell you exactly what we talked about, but... I badly misread her situation, and now she's dead, and it's my fault. No, you are probably being too hard on yourself, Brian. She may have killed herself even if she saw another therapist. No, I don't think so. It was my fault, and now, now I'm having a very hard time living with the guilt. It will get better. I've killed 17 people, and after the first one, the others were not too bad. Brian was shocked and moved a little farther away from Eddie. You, uh, you kill people? No, only 17. I don't do it for a living. I did it for revenge. You see, Brian, I'm Cambodian, and when I was a small child, the Khmer Rouge slaughtered my family in a particularly nasty way. I vowed I would find the guys who did it and punish them. I did. And they are all dead. I haven't killed anyone since. Well, except for Victor. Jesus, Eddie. That's hard to believe. Eddie looked at Brian with steely eyes and said, Believe it. Brian did believe it. Despite Eddie's diminutive size, he sensed this was a man you didn't want to cross. Don't you ever feel guilty for what you've done? He asked. Well, I do feel a little bad about Victor, but the other guys, not anymore. Look, Brian, I can tell you're really agonizing over the death of your patient. If you are interested, I've got a deal for you that I think may alleviate your burden. Warily, Brian asked, What sort of deal? If you're interested in putting that girl's death behind you, we can trade guilt. In my old country, it is believed that people can swap guilt burdens to help each other move on with their lives. 
I've done it before, and it works. If you take my guilt for what I did to poor little Victor, I'll take the responsibility for the death of your patient. <laughs> I don't know, Eddie, said Brian. His western mind couldn't fully grasp such an alien concept. It's a good deal. The guilt you accept from me won't bother you much. A monkey? Even though you do accept the responsibility. You can easily live with that. Although I suppose you might feel a bit sad about Victor now and again. I'll be a little bummed about your patient too. But what the hell? I didn't really tell her to take the flying leap. It's a win-win situation, Brian. What do you say? The more Brian thought about it, the more sense it made to him. Guilt swapping. It beat Freud. What did he really have to lose? <laughs> Hell, why not? Let's do it. Victor's death is on me now, and Carrie Ann's pale face is yours. Deal, said Eddie, as he handed the muslin sack to Brian. Now, Patience and I have to get off at next stop. Be sure that monkey gets a proper burial. He put his hand on Patience's knee and jostled it. Come on, sweetie. We got a dead girl to trade. That was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, I get pissed when spider monkeys mess with my ears, too, but I've never killed one for it. Maybe if I was hungry and there weren't any policies or anything preventing me from doing that. Well, feedback from a few weeks ago, Jeffrey Scott Sims' office consultation. The comments got a little sidetracked with discussions about tasering douchebags, which is fine. That's obviously a real in-your-face issue in today's world that's, for some reason, not getting enough discussion. But we did have some good thoughts. Adam asked... Was it the improbability itself or his awareness paranoia of it that actually ceased him? Either way, it's comforting to know that being terrible at math could actually pay off for me. Lawson WNC said, He realized he statistically shouldn't exist, and now he doesn't. That explains what happened to my sex life. Steve said, Nice story. I knew how it was going to end fairly early on, but only because it was the most appropriate ending. Well, on a podcast where every other story has a twist ending, I think it's fun to sometimes have occasional stories where the ending isn't what you expected it would be, because it was exactly what you expected it to be. Whoa, I'm thinking too much here. Better stop. Be sure to take a minute and join the new Drabblecast discussion forums. Get to them from the site, www.drabblecast.org. There's already some good chatter going on about last week's story, The Suit, by G.W. Thomas. Also, if you enjoy the Drabblecast, think about donating a buck or two to us so that we can pay our authors. There's a PayPal donate button on our website. Oh, and don't miss next week's Halloween special. Actually, you might want to miss it. If you're easily frightened, Patsy. <laughs> the Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you should only feel guilty about listening to it if you plan on altering it or selling it. And you probably won't be able to sell it anyways, trust me. We'd be selling it if that were possible. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, who had a cyborg shoulder for a few weeks, Luke Coddington, who punched me in the shoulder a lot one time because I threw a soap dispenser at his ear, 
and myself, Norm Sherman, reminding all you unconscionable monkey killers out there that strong cologne doesn't mask the scent of your dead monkey. It just makes your dead monkey more dateable and attractive to the opposite sex. Well, if it's good cologne. 